Hello, I'm Marcus Pibworth and welcome to the Ministry of Change. And the Ministry of Change podcast is a vehicle that I use to try and really explore what it means to be human today and how to navigate the ups and downs of life because let's face it life can be pretty challenging to navigate especially if you try and do it by yourself which I wouldn't recommend why would you do it by yourself you don't need to Uh, and this conversation I have today is with uh, Liz Slade and it's a really fascinating conversation. It's part of this series of conversations I've been recording recently with people from different spiritual traditions because I thought it'd be a really fascinating lens to explore mental health and social change through this lens of spirituality to see what role, if any, spirituality has to play in changing our current concepts around mental health and social change. And if so, what is that role and so it's been a great journey so i spoke to radha mohan das uh, about so harry krishna and their role in social change and i uh, went to the sami ling tibetan monastery and talked about some sort of buddhism's role in in change and mental health with uh lama yeshi and annie lamo so if you haven't listened to those episodes go back and do that i really recommend them and then this one with liz slade who is the chief officer of the unitarian church movement and she has some really interesting perspectives around sort of spirituality what it, that means and also uh, sort of inclusivity and compassion which i think is is very important and i met liz well, i don't know about a year ago but i've known of her for a long time we're both sort of part of the same friendship group but had never actually crossed paths and it was only when i was invited by james and aldi who actually coincidentally he was featured on an earlier episode of the Ministry of Change podcast talking about his experience of when he believed he was Jesus for a while, that he describes as either a psychotic episode or a spiritual awakening or perhaps a bit of both. It's a really fascinating conversation if you want to go back to that. But he invited me to the New New Unity Church in North London, which is a non-religious congregation. And that coincidentally is where I first actually met Liz. And uh, anyway, we'll talk. I'll introduce you more to her or she will in the conversation. But as a storyteller, I would like to first, before we go into the conversation, tell a short story, which I think um, I think it really resonates with the conversations I've been having and particularly with the one I have with Liz. Uh, But you can make up your mind about that. And uh, again, it features a frog. So many of my stories seem to feature frogs. And it's actually, uh, there's so many different versions of this. I sort of amalgamated a few to make a version that I thought worked well. So I'll tell it now. There was once a frog and he lived in a well. In fact, he had been born in the well and it's all he knew. But he loved his life in the well. He declared himself king of the well. He'd spend his day eating the insects, swimming around in the cool waters. At night, he could stare up and see the twinkling stars at the top of the well. Sometimes he could even see the beautiful moon. One day, a sea turtle arrived at the well. 
The frog said to him, Who are you? And what are you doing here? The sea turtle said, Oh, my apologies. I have lost my way. I am from the sea. And the frog said, Well, welcome to my well. Stay as long as you like, for I'm sure you have never witnessed anything quite as big and grand as this. And the sea turtle said, well, Thank you, frog, but I will be on my way soon. And, uh, well, it is a very nice well, but it's not nearly as big as the sea where I'm from. The sea? What is it? How can the sea be anywhere near as big and grand as my well? Well, said the sea turtle, the sea is a thousand times bigger, if not more than this tiny well. How dare you? This is not true. Please let me take you with me up out of the well and I will show you. Aha! I know what you are trying to do, said the frog. You are trying to trick me so you can claim the well for yourself, so you can be king of the well. No, no, frog, I'm, I'm not. I, it's a lovely well, but the outside world is even bigger than the sea. It is vast. The frog was not happy about this. And again, he said, how dare you take that back? Once more, the sea turtle offered to take the frog with him. But the frog again sneered, said, I know your game. I know what you're up to. I know you want this well for yourself. Be gone. And so the sea turtle, deciding it was not worth wasting any more of his time, climbed out of the well and went back to the sea. And the frog climbed onto his rock at the bottom of the well and he gazed around at his empire and he smiled and he ate some insects. He swam around in the cool water and was happy not to have been fooled by the horrible sea turtle. I like that story. Um, there are some versions where he gets sort of convinced and by either a turtle or a bird and they go and take him and show him the winding rivers and the vast ocean and his mind's changed. But uh, in this version, he doesn't. He stays in the well. And so like, you think that like, how often do you ignore other people's points of view and stick with what you know? And what could you be missing out? Well, I think um, in the conversation with Liz, this comes up, this idea. And um, I think it's an interesting one to ponder on. And uh, so without further ado, I will now move us into the conversation. And then I'll come back at the end. So thank you. Here is my conversation with Liz Slade recorded in October in London. So um, I'm Liz Slade and I'm the Chief Officer of the General Assembly of Unitarian and Free Christian Churches and I've been doing that job for about seven months now. Really my role is supporting the network of Unitarian co congregations across the country. So there's 162 congregations and each one is independent. So my role and the role of the General Assembly is sort of supporting them to do what they're doing and to sort of help grow and encourage 
Unitarianism across the country. Can I just ask to start off with what is Unitarianism? That is a great question. Yes. So it started, well, we're actually here in the General Assembly offices. This is the site of the first ever Unitarian church, which started in 1774. But there'd been a lot of sort of you know, Unitarians doing stuff before that, even if they hadn't identified themselves as a specifically Unitarian congregation. So it all started in the 1600s with when the Church of England was being formed and Unitarians and other non-conformists were sort of saying, well, we don't think it's right to follow this rule book of, you know, this is how you do the Church of England, so the Book of Common Prayer and things like that, and really thinking that it was more about ministers following their own wisdom and sort of tending their flock in the way that they see fit, sort of trusting that they've got, you know, the knowledge and the wisdom and the ability to find the things to to share and teach. Um, And so in 1662, all of the ministers who weren't prepared to sign up to the Church of England way of doing things were kicked out. And some of them went on to be Quakers and some went on to be Methodists and um, some went on to be Unitarians. So it it started from Christianity, but it's really broadened since then. And really the idea is that everyone is finding their own spiritual path and we're doing that together in community. And so there's Unitarian Christians now, people who do you know, identify as Christians. There's other people who would value the teachings of Jesus but not identify as Christians. There's people who would be Unitarian Buddhists, pagans, atheists, humanists, agnostics, you know, all sorts, and lots of people who don't, aren't particularly interested in what the labels are. So the um, sort of underlying thing that brings everyone together is this idea of exploring spirituality in community. Right, and, and sort of finding value in doing that with other people who don't believe the same thing. Yeah. Of, of finding, well, you know, you see the world differently to me, you have different beliefs, and I value that, and I'm, you know, I want to learn from you and not try and convince you that my perspective is right. Spirituality, if we can go right to the word, I guess, is a scary word mm. for a lot of people. Yeah. I feel comfortable with it now, but there was many, many years where as soon as that came up, I would either think of religion or of the sort of people who are going to find themselves. And right. Like, and I'd roll my eyes and like sort of run away from it. Yeah. Now I have a very different understanding of it. But Right. Yeah, no, yeah. I. it took me a long time not to say spirituality in a funny voice or kind of put <laughs> inverted commas yeah. around it. Um, because yeah, I think it is a very difficult word and religion is a really difficult word um, and we don't really have very good language. Um, you know, someone I was speaking to was sort of saying, well, maybe psychosocial is a better word, but I don't think it is. It doesn't sound very <laughs> it's accessible. Not, no, exactly. So it, I don't think we have got very good language or we need to sort of reclaim the language. Yeah. Um, because there's just so much baggage. I saw something that you had written actually in an article that said uh, it was a really nice description of spirituality and it said many people use that term spirituality we're talking about but what I mean by spiritual needs are the universal human longings for connection belonging meaning purpose the sense of being part of something bigger than ourselves and the recognition of the interconnectedness of all life yeah I thought that was a pretty good concise description Right, I think I think um, the, the, them being universal human needs 
I think is the important thing for me because um, it is quite hard being human. Like we're good at stuff, you know, we've got opposable thumbs and, you know, we can, we're quite clever, but um, we have got, you know, we're very emotional beings, but m so much stuff in our culture doesn't really help us navigate our emotional selves or our spiritual selves. Um, and so we do it badly quite a lot. And, you know, you can see all the, the kind of social problems that we could, you know, list. So many of them, I think, come to come down to us not making the best of being human. Um, and so I guess that's kind of why I'm interested in this, you know, why I'm doing this job, because it feels like a lot of the things that can help people be human better, to cope with being human better, um, have belonged in religion. Um, and so I'm interested in how we can sort of rescue those things from the types of religion that people aren't very interested in and plug them into our culture in a way that makes sense for how people live now. What are those things? Or some of those things? That help people live better. That, mm. are, that you would extrapolate from religion? Right, so... I think there's something about just being in community, of being um, being with people in, in relationships that's different to friendship, it's different to sort of work relationships, um, you know, where you can go and be accepted and belong and be supported and kind of have your ass kicked when it needs to be. And, you know, you can kind of turn up in whatever state that you're in and be welcomed and loved, you know, those sense of community is is really important and you know not very common in most of our culture so this kind of learning how to do that um, you know helps um, there's I don't know tapping into the the best of human wisdom and that might be through um, religious texts it might be through philosophy it might be through literature it might be through music um, but tapping into the best of the wisdom that humans have created over the centuries um, and, and sharing that, because again, it's not necessarily very easy to come by. There's something really important, I think, about doing things together. And I think it's really important that church is not just showing up and consuming something. Um, like you can just go and, you know, sit in a pew and listen to some um, you know, listen to a sermon and learn something and, you know, sing and listen to music and all of that kind of stuff and get value out of it. But I think it's really important the way that people contribute as well. Um, and it might be that you're handing out the hymn books or making tea for people afterwards, or it might be that you are, um, you know, leading a service or putting on a jumble sale or doing some social action in the community, but finding the thing that is right and kind of resonates with you so that you are acting and sort of expressing yourself in the world. I think that's a really important part of what, what has belonged in religion and people do find elsewhere, but is, is part of what helps us to be human well. How do you think you bring that sort of stuff into a setting like a Unitarian church? How do you bring people in that have this such a big fear of 
religion or such baggage with it maybe this is right so this is one of my yeah. biggest questions yeah. really um so i know from my experience how valuable it is to belong to a uh you know religious community um even though the the congregation that's my home congregation described itself as a non-religious church and i think that was really important in in me being part of it in the first place so started going about eight years ago and it was the things that were not like church that made it even possible for me to go so the fact that the minister's an atheist it made me it made it sort of feel accessible to me and um, whereas otherwise i would be like well of course it's not church i've got you know why would i do that why would i go to church and so i'm really conscious of how for a lot of people things that look and sound and feel like religion can be a real turn off and keep people away from the stuff that really helps and at the same time there's no point in kind of pretending like you can't trick people into church yeah. um and so this is why the language is so important and also just creating a bit more of a nuanced dialogue around what religion is what the value of it is um and how these spiritual needs are universal human needs they're not just things that you know religious people have because they're special and different i think that's really i think that's important and um i don't know what your background is actually in terms of sort of religion but i imagine from what you said you approached it from a non religious upbringing or childhood well, my, or my childhood was pretty religious so my um you know both my parents yeah. are christian my mum's parents were actually missionaries they met in a missionary hospital in india in the 1930s okay. and my grandmother was a like methodist lay preacher so i kind of grew up feeling i grew up in an environment which sort of took religion for granted of just like well of course and then as a teenager i was like well no not this and then i guess through my 20s was a bit sort of sneery about religion and just sort of like well of course I'm an atheist and of course religion is nonsense and, and but probably for the most time just not really thinking about religion of just sort of thinking of it as a kind of niche interest and not at all relevant to my life and I was working in sort of science and medicine as well so it sort of feels a little bit like you kind of have to choose one mm. you know you can't you can't do science and god and so yeah I'd kind of just sort of forgotten that religion was a thing that people do um and then so finding this congregation where the minister is an atheist and he used to be a scientist as well so it felt like oh, okay that makes sense so yeah so i kind of grew up with church in my life as a as a kid you know as a pre pre-teenager This is what I said before we started recording. I mm. felt like you were like leafing through my diary. Right. And actually I think it This is the diary just, that I've been leafing through. Yeah. Uh, and I can't believe you got where did you find it? <laughs> But I've written this I wrote this thing and it reminded me very much of a post that I read the other day that you'd written and it was sort of about this tension of sort of a former world view and an right. emerging one sitting together and how to do that and i think actually rather than trying to like blab about like trying to i might just read out yeah. what i wrote and then we can see take some stuff from that right. or dismiss it so this is what i wrote very recently i mean a few like a month or so ago 
I feel like I'm in this very strange spiritual place where my brain or my body or my mind, I'm not sure what, holds two opposing, perhaps conflicting beliefs. The first is the remnants of a former belief system, albeit in a weaker form, the belief in rationalism and logic, proof and science, a belief that everything might be connected because of the natural links of nature, but essentially this is the world as we see it. The possibility of there being a God or an afterlife or karma reincarnation is unimaginably small. That the universe is a big cosmic accident. There is no meaning. Things just happen. And that is where we can find liberation. Then there's this other belief, a belief in the beauty of the world, the sacredness of the world, a beauty where the heart rules and is driven by something much deeper than just animal intuition. The knowledge that if I quieten myself enough to hear my heart, my body, I can hear the universe or God or the divine, the Tao, the Chi, the earth, whatever you want to call it. A belief that our consciousness is unfathomable, but it is connected to something deeper than just me, that is connected to the spirit of everyone on the planet, every person, every animal, every flower a belief in the sacred power, infinite love contained within us, a belief that I am a small part of something cosmic, that coincidences don't exist, that everything happens for a reason, that we are always in the right place at the right time, the understanding that if I can surrender to the spiritual world, the journey, the quest, therein lies freedom. Not ease or comfort, but freedom, because I've touched it. Hmm. And I read an article that you had written about something very similar to that. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so I studied neuroscience at university. Mm. So, um, and I think because I sort of wanted to understand, uh, you know, human consciousness. Um, so I understand that now. Um, no, it's quite big, complicated. Yeah. Um, and obviously this is all kind of part of the same questing. And those two worldviews that you just described, um, I guess I don't see them as being in opposition to each other. Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of a, you know, quite a unitarian view of the world as well, of really drawing on, um, you know, rationalism and it being, you know, something that kind of grew around the sort of time of the Enlightenment and that kind of thing. It's sort of, you know, definitely got rationalism baked in but also questioning. I guess they don't, those two viewpoints don't need to be in opposition with each other because they're just different, they're just different ways of looking at the world. It's more valuable to include both of those, you know, include the science and include the stories and to know that as humans, yes, we have this sort of, you know, analytical capability and we've, you know, invented the scientific method and it's been really helpful and we're emotional beings and, you know, we've invented stories and storytelling and that really helps us. You know, it's a great way of passing on ideas and creating ideas and it really, yeah, it really helps us live well together. So, yeah, all of, all of that is important and... It feels like it's kind of missing the point if we're sort of divisive and kind of feel like we have to choose one. But I can see how 
historically people have sort of felt very wedded to one side or the other and feel the need to argue against the other in case theirs, you know, gets discounted. I guess it's a sign of the binary world that we generally live in, this sort of idea that you you are either for this or against this, rather right. than like the reality of this very grey area where we don't know. And there's many different ways of approaching the same thing. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I feel like that is, since writing these things down, that's more of the thing I've been trying to sort of get my head around is that it's okay to be sort of both, but actually, I mean, as soon as you start telling someone else that they're wrong, mm. it starts to be like you're coming from a place of knowing, but, and who am I to say, but I feel that a lot of the stuff is is unknowable. It's just, it's, or it's, it's, you can know it in yourself, but that doesn't mean that it, other people are knowing it in the same way. Right. There's lots of different ways of knowing things. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and they're all valuable. So yeah, so I, you know, started off my career in like scientific publishing, and you know, worked for a long time in um, sort of healthcare sector and. It, talking about the importance of evidence-based medicine, you know, making doctors making decisions based on the best available research. Um, and yes, that's really important, but it's only one type of knowledge. I think particularly in healthcare, things can be quite limited if they are based only on, you know, the scientific research, because that's so limited in and of itself and is only based on certain elements of being human, like we're more than just sort of physiological bags of organs, you know, we, and so some of the work I've done in the past has been around the role that the community plays in people's health and well-being. Um, and I think there's more and more interest in that stuff now. I'm um, saying, you know, yes, hospitals are great and, you know, scientific mm. medicine is really important and really valuable and saves people's lives all the time. And there's so much in how we live that is beyond physiology that to help people live healthy lives, then it needs to kind of factor in some of those things. And with mental health particularly, like, yeah, it's incredible that, um, you know, antidepressants and things like that have been, you know, invented and are easily available. That's fantastic. That helps loads of people all the time. But to kind of feel like, well, we're done then, you know, <laughs> we can fix that problem is... Uh, it just makes no sense because, of course, people's lives and people's emotions are, you know, so complex and we kind of need to factor in the bigger picture, really, of how people are living their lives and not just kind of, you know, zoom in on the scientific answer to the question because that's only, it's an important lens, but it's only one lens. I mean, that's that's really important to the work that I do because I feel that I mean, one of the understandings I have of it is yeah, definitely sort of the science and medication and stuff in in the realm of mental health and I mean especially my my area of expertise depression mm. because of my own experiences I mean yeah I think it's it's really important but then if you neglect to look at the social conditions of like why are increasingly people depressed and not even like necessarily people that are classified as clinically depressed just right. the vast majority of people right. I seem to meet at some level I would say are depressed not even if sometimes they don't even know it <laughs> I feel maybe that's judgmental but like I but you need to start looking deeper like can you really create a pill that will deal with 
isolated societies, can you create a pill that will deal with not being around trees enough? Can you right. create a pill that sort of basically uh, combats consumer capitalism? <laughs> I don't right, like these, exactly. These sort of things, which maybe yes, you can, but my inkling is probably not. Well, it's and, like, and is, is that you, really the best answer? That the, yeah, and is that the <coughs> is that the answer? Even if you could, wouldn't it be better to prescribe more trees than more pills? But like, again, as I say, it's a very nuanced thing, but I think often that is something that surprisingly is overlooked by a lot of people. Right, exactly, because it's so normal that we live in a society that creates you know, socioeconomic inequality and where consumerism is seen as like the normal way to live and individualism is seen as the normal way to live. And, um, we, you know, we live in cities in concrete and glass and we don't pay much attention to what season it is. And we go into the supermarket to buy our, to buy our food and we can have strawberries any time of the year we want. And if we continue living like that, and then taking pills when we don't feel right, it sort of feels like, well, maybe there's a better answer. Maybe actually just because we can treat some elements of the problems doesn't mean that we should carry on creating the problems. And how do you think a sort of spiritual path, spirituality play into that? I guess what I'm not very interested in is spirituality as a kind of kind of way of helping people cope with our current way of living. Like, yes, it helps, but again, it's maybe not the right answer, um, not the best answer. Really, I think that the things that we can learn from religions, um, you know, how to live in community, how to understand ourselves, how to understand each other, um, you know, all of these things, I think they're the tools that we need to build a culture where we can all thrive you know, we're obviously in a time of great change at the moment. It feels like there's a real opportunity for us to equip ourselves better to navigate life and to build a culture where, yeah, where we where we are making the most of being human. And, and you know, thinking about Unitarianism, which kind of grew out of the sort of post-English Civil War period when there was, you know, a huge amount of social change and, you know, religion and political systems and ideas about where power lies were all kind of thrown up in the air at the same time that kind of the printing press was being invented and kind of, you know, so information could be shared so much more quickly and easily than it ever could be before. And then thinking about now, well, obviously it's kind of very similar, you know, with the internet and with all of the kind of political changes that are happening now and the possibilities um, and you know much more open ideas about how we might live it feels like it's sort of the the right time for us to be looking again at that overlap between religion politics social factors you know how we live because it's not an option for us to just carry on with the same socioeconomic system um, because we've broken the planet. So the point isn't really to tell people how to think or what to think or even necessarily why they should think it, but to create the spaces where this can be done healthily with us sort of in, in a safe environment with other people that are trying to explore similar things, really. 
Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think a big part of it is so it's 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 kind of, you know, sharing the wisdom, sharing the tools, sharing the ideas, helping people to be in community with each other, understand themselves, live well, be happy. But a big part of that is also tapping into people's power so that they are, you know, so much more in tune with their own agency and they can act in the world in a way that is truthful and loving um, and that they can genuinely act in a way that is right for them. And and I guess kind of realising with that, that, you know, we're all as individuals kind of supremely powerful and can make the world the shape that we want it to be. Because at the moment it sort of feels, it's easy to feel like kind of quite powerless in that the power lies with politicians or corporations or um, billionaires, whatever. And of course, there is truth in that. But also, I guess with the, you know, what we're seeing at the moment with the amount of, you know, protests all around the world, you know, there's a huge amount of power that each human being has and very, you know, um, the barriers to us working collectively are lower than they've ever been. But it feels really important that we kind of equip ourselves with the right kind of spiritual skills so that we can work collectively in a healthy way because it's really easy for it to go wrong. Yeah, I mean, it can definitely all go wrong and to be able to create systems where people can support one another, show compassion to each other, but also I guess it's not important, I feel less and less like it's important to agree on stuff, but to find maybe some points to connect with, but Mm. I think the idea that we're all going to have the same view of everything, which is maybe something that in the past I would have thought what we really need to do is work out a way where we can all just agree on something, but I feel like, I don't know if it's the world is changing or read more, just I'm a few years old or whatever, it feels like that's not something that can ever happen because even I know from my own life, I change from one day to the next or one month to the next, my ideas of what is the sort of correct thing mm-hmm. we should be doing. And so if each individual person has the ability to change day to day their understanding of what needs to be done, how could we ex- expect billions of people right. to get together and agree on <laughs> sort of one path or one way or one thing? And right. It's not yeah, it feels like, to me, it's less important or it's just not very important that everyone agrees on like the same way of doing things or that there is a right way, you know, even the idea that there is a sort of, um, you know, right version of things um, doesn't feel very kind of relevant or helpful. And I guess you can see why those ideas have existed because it's easier to have a, a tribe if you're like, yes, we all believe this same thing, or yes, we're all going to act in this same way, or yes, these are, you know, we've, we're all agreed that this is the way that we're going to do things. You know, it's easier to kind of get a group being cohesive if you're like, yes, we're all signed up to this same, same belief, whatever it might be, whether it's kind of Christianity or communism or whatever. But, you know, I think we're totally able to hold the, the sort of complexity of like, you've got that opinion and I've got this opinion, but I can see what we've got in common. And we know that we're kind of doing the same thing together in one way, even if we are not agreed on every element of it. 
And, you know, each person is, of course, totally shaped by their own unique experience. And so if people need to sign up to one way of doing things, then quite often it will mean like letting go of something that is important to them. And yeah, the ability to question and the ability to change your mind as your life experience changes seems pretty useful, really. It's not easy in the way that our culture is at the moment, because I think, um, you know, a lot of people are moving from that um, sort of secular, atheist, um, maybe materialistic kind of view of the world um, to being like, oh, hang on, that doesn't seem to be very useful to me. Like, I'm, I'm, you know, interested in these other ideas, but everyone a lot of people need to need to kind of explore that independently because the alternative is going to you know the church of england or another sort of religious organization that's sort of saying well these are our answers do you want these answers because those are our answers so that's what's available here and so that's just sort of swapping one set of clear beliefs of you know i'm an atheist or whatever for another set of clear beliefs of okay i'm an Anglican. I think that's not what a lot of people are looking for right now. And, and maybe it's related to sort of how much easier it is to access all sorts of different information on the internet, be connected into lots of different cultures and people from different worldviews. Or maybe it's just a different lens, you know, of like we were saying with, you know, the description in your diary of sort of, it doesn't need to be sort of putting those two different worldviews of sort of secular versus spiritual into opposition with each other. You can have both of those at the same time. I've been thinking a lot about kind of spiritual literacy and how at the moment it is really hard to find out about the world and about ourselves if you're not signing up to one particular religious perspective. And that's, you know, what I really think uh, Unitarian congregations can offer. I think there's a lot more that we can do to reach more people, but to kind of say, we're not going to tell you what the right answer is, but we're going to help you find the answer that's right for you at the moment and know that that might change throughout your life. But yeah, people need help to explore these things. And also because if a lot of people are exploring in a place of vulnerability and there are lots of opportunities to be exploited by you know, either unethical or just kind of a bit ill-advised kind of people who are sort of offering answers. Yeah, I mean, that's a really important thing because I, I think especially from the angle that I'm exploring from and with, I mean, my, from my experiences, yeah, if you often people find these different ways of thinking because they're forced to, if your life is going really well right. and everything is fine, you're not really inclined to start questioning right, your exactly. belief system. So often... When people do, it's either th it's through something, I mean, something like mental health, something like depression yeah. or anxiety or, or like, I don't know, a divorce or a loss of a job or a loss right. of something steady and then it sort of throws your world into disarray. And, right. But yeah, that is also the point where you're most vulnerable. So, yeah, right. so it's important to be able to have the guide, a guide out of that that isn't trying to exploit you. Yeah. And I guess that's something which I'm really interested in because we don't have 
any rites of passage per se in right. our community. We don't have elders to guide us. We don't have anything like that. So, I mean, I guess the only thing that I could really call like a rites of passage was being younger and taking loads of drugs with my friends. Right. That's not really a healthy rite of passage, but that's because at the time where I think you'd traditionally get that sort of journey from boyhood into adulthood or whatever, yeah. there was nothing in the society to give that. Right. So I and I think the vast majority of people in our society find their own rites of passage in a not safe way. Yeah, and in a kind of slightly unplanned way, it's sort of probably only yeah. sort of in retrospect that you're like, okay, that was a rite of passage. Yes, it definitely wasn't like we all sat down at 14 and said, how are we going right. to sort of navigate this journey? It's like, yeah, it was, it was accidental, ill-advised, but necessary part of life because you have to go through it. Yeah. But it's better if you can have some experienced people that can help you, as you said, not give you an answer, but hold you while you find the answer. Right, exactly. And we just, the idea that these sort of rituals can be valuable is, you know, not very mainstream in our culture. And certainly it was my perspective as well. I just kind of saw rituals as being, you know, these traditions that were unhelpful and irrelevant. And it's like, well, why would I do that just because... Mm generations have been doing it it's like doesn't say anything to me about my life but if you kind of break it down and learn the the sort of principles um that are sort of baked into a lot of these sort of rites of passage and rituals then it's like oh right i get what the process is but i guess the problem is that a lot of them are quite vacuous processes that have the people doing them have sort of yeah. either not are not transmitting the thing or they've lost it and it's like when you went at the beginning i was saying when someone people just going to church without sort of any sort of theological sort of understanding or questioning right. of why they're there a ritual only means something if it's being held in a way that actually transmits all those meanings but if you just witness them from the outside it's just a bunch of usually older people doing something unconnected and quite boring right probably once a week or wait way too many times yeah and it <laughs> for, just for a long amount of time and like it's this isn't for me right so yeah because it's, it's you can't see the meaning in it yeah but if you, and i think that's why the sort of spiritual literacy feels important yeah. so that we can build the rituals that we need and that we can um you know we we can understand the sort of tools and techniques and use them for ourselves either individually or collectively and so like, I was, you made me think then of like in my 20s sort of working in, um, you know, science and healthcare, I was a, a real fan of Ben Goldacre's like bad science column um, where he would sort of talk about sort of mainstream sort of news stories or adverts or whatever that were kind of using science badly and kind of educating the sort of general public about how science works and how to talk about it and how not to talk about it and that sort of thing. I think we kind of need the same thing now for religion and spirituality and rituals just to kind of equip us all with better knowledge of how these things work and what we need, you know, what's appropriate and what's not appropriate in the use of these tools and techniques. You know, so that teenagers can have better rites of passage or you know anyone at any point in their life can sort of have the rites of passage and rituals that they need and that they can express you know oh there's this thing that's happening in my life at the moment I need this kind of support and ask for help 
in a better way because at the moment if you're kind of if you're in crisis then you know it's like okay you you go you you go to the doctor you go to the nhs and they're only able to sort of help in in the limited and i guess also that also shows the society we have that if you're in that we see it as a crisis that needs that can only be helped by a doctor's medicine yeah whereas actually i think being in crisis is often the sane reaction to the situation and actually sometimes you need that but sometimes you just need someone there to be like it's okay to be in crisis and to be lost because this is the thing that is helping you grow right and so you don't need to fix this or correct this right yeah go back to a former state actually you need to navigate this this is the juicy stuff but if you're doing that by yourself in a society that doesn't necessarily understand that right when you reach these breaking points or points where you're, I mean breakthrough points where you're like okay I've, re- I've gone as far as I can with this particular thing and now I'm lost and screaming inside yeah actually this is like yes here you are welcome now right. hold on to this and let's get through to the next bit yeah <laughs> rather than like you've yeah you're you're wrong and right I think that's it our, I think our culture quite often sort of suggests that we're supposed to be happy all the time and so if there's if at any point you're not then therefore you must be broken and you need fixing and of course that's not the case as you say like the different you know the, all, <clears throat> all these different experiences can be really useful you know and they might be awful at the time but um you know good things can come out of them but being able to help each other with that seems so important so it's not just you know i'm having a bad time and I need some antidepressants so I'll feel better. Like that might be part of the the solution, but it's also, you know, getting support from your community or being able to describe what's going on for you to your friends in a way that they can understand it better. Because I think we don't, you know, we don't really have a lot of language to describe some of these things. Or again, because we're supposed to be happy, then it's, you know, it can be like a kind of a poor you or they're there, or, you know, let's go to the pub and feel better, rather than sort of acknowledging that there are these different times in our lives, there's different things that go on, and we are able to help each other navigate much better than we are at the moment. Thank you very much to Liz Slade. I really enjoyed that conversation. I think it was... um so fascinating and I really feel that me and Liz could have sat there for another couple of hours and recorded much more so uh really um really nice to get the opportunity it's so exciting to be able to talk to all these different people I love it um and uh yeah so I would urge you if you haven't go back and listen to the at least the previous three three conversations but there's so many more uh there's about 40 conversations uh there's lots of different interesting people as Charles Eisenstein the late Polly Higgins uh, there's uh, ones on sort of leadership with Sally Ann there's well, so many different different ones to explore so yeah do go back and delve into those and if you want to mo- hear more about sort of the Ministry of Change and what I'm doing and see some videos of my storytelling that sort of thing then do go over to theministryofchange.org and uh, check that out sign up to the newsletter that sort of thing Uh, I try and support myself using Patreon 
Uh, and if you do like these podcasts and my content, then if you sign up to my Patreon and donate, then that helps me to continue to do this. And thank, thank you so much to all of the people who are already doing that. It does mean so much to me. I know it probably seems like a tiny amount, but you give but it really really helps so just the moral support of that is so wonderful and uh yeah thank you it's not a very lucrative business either storytelling or podcasting so it does really help and uh i'd like to say thank you to graham walker for providing the piano music that goes underneath the intro and the outro uh, i'll put a link down to his work he's a wonderful person and uh yeah so so check out his stuff and uh, yeah as i said before in the last few i've just started um using a podcasting platform called anchor and i noticed on there you can actually directly record voice messages to me at the ministry of change and if you fancy like doing that either recording a story from your own life or some feedback about the show that sort of thing i'd love to if it works out to be able to include some of them in the future shows so um please do play around with that but the most important thing is that you are here listening and to tell your friends and share it with people that you think would be interested and uh that's probably the last episode we're going to have this side of the new year so i'll be back with some more in the new year so thank you very much for listening to these and i will see you again hopefully very soon goodbye